welcome to episode 40 of the figure podcast each week we figure out people numbers and images of the past present and future hi shah how are you this week i'm very well thank you how are you good good i'm good good and what have you been up to this week what has been happening oh oh yes i um was in Cornwall last weekend I went surfing um which was and was that the first time you'd been surfing yes um and I absolutely loved it so I can't wait to go back um it's sort of I think you get a bug for it actually because you kind of I guess with any kind of new skill that you you know are good at you think oh my gosh I just want to get better what was the hardest part of it the hardest part was actually having the confidence to to pick, to believe that you could do it, actually. That's probably true of quite a lot of things. Mm, because actually, manoeuvring yourself wasn't too hard, but it just felt like, I just thought, oh, I'm never going to get this. I can't get this. There's no way. And how long did it take you to stand up? It took me about um, half, maybe like just under half an hour um, just to stand up, but... But it's not really the. P- I mean, it's great to have st- stood up, but the point is to sort of try to get up in a way, and then na- m- navigate the board, and actually stay up for quite a long time. That's amazing. Um, so, yeah, it was good. By the by the Sunday, I was like actually surfing. But it just kind of it just kind of reiterated to me that one should do things like that more that either scare you, challenge you you know, uh, get, get you outside <laughs> uh, all weekend doing something active because, I don't know, we can, I think, get stuck really quickly just sort of sitting down all day. Sitting down all day is so unnatural. So unnatural. It's sort of a shame that we have to do that quite often for work. Yeah, it's really lovely. I've had my family dog staying with me and she wakes me up very early in the morning and insists on lots of walks, which means you don't really have a choice. If you want to get anything done, you've actually got to go outside and then you quite often find that the work that you do is better anyway. Mm. When you're scheduling when you're working, do you schedule it around breaking to sort of walk around a bit or go outside or can you spend a long time not going outside? Like, do you have to... Do you have to be quite strict with yourself? Um, it depends on what I'm working on and who I'm working for. So on two days a week, I've got strict hours, but it's flexible. So for example, today I took half an hour for lunch and then took half an hour for a walk in the afternoon. Um, so I can kind of organise it myself, which is good. Mm. I can imagine though, working freelance, it can be tempting to work at all sorts of crazy, not crazy hours, but sort of work at different hours and actually structure is probably better. Yeah, it can be. But then I think the reason what I keep on coming back to, and I guess we'll talk about this actually with the um, upcoming figures is just, and I'm in a very lucky place and I want to appreciate that. And if I take an hour to, I don't know, go and walk into town and get a book that I've been wanting to like collect and pre-ordered, then I don't beat myself up for taking that hour off work, so to speak, because then I might end up doing an hour over the weekend. So it all just balances each other out what have you been listening to and reading listening to so i'm um still listening to the party by elizabeth day i'm nearly finished that um 
audio book and in in terms of um podcasts you know i'm actually listening to pretty much all of the old favorites going in and out of how to fail and i particularly enjoyed it this week it's like oddly comforting and sometimes i could just listen to that podcast and only that podcast absolutely yeah for, for a long time The first figure that we're going to talk about today is the screenwriter Richard Curtis, who was born in Wellington in New Zealand and then grew up in Stockholm and Manila in the Philippines and then later moved to the UK. He is most known for his romantic comedies such as Love Actually, Notting Hill, Four Weddings and a Funeral and About Time and most recently Yesterday which imagines a world where the main character is the only person who can remember the Beatles songs and he's a singer-songwriter and he is then faced with the decision of do I keep this to myself or do I play them and hope that I can share them with the world and it's also a love story between um, Himesh Patel who plays the main character Jack and Lily James who plays his manager Ellie. How lovely was that film? Just it was sort of heart lifting it's one of those things where when I realized the concept of the film and the plot (laughs) you know it wasn't actually him who came up with the idea for that it was a man called Jack Bath and he sent Richard Curtis this idea and asked if he'd like to read a screenplay on that idea and he said no I'd like to write it so that's how it started because I remember last year when um his partner Emma Freud was being interviewed by Dolly in Love Stories and she said you know we've we've just finished our next film with Danny Boyle and you know and I was just I was not convinced for a long time that it would work and I was so curious at the time to find out what's she talking about Um, but it was actually this film and it was so great I saw it on a Monday evening and it, it literally just made me smile for the whole week. It also made me think about the work of Richard Curtis himself because so much of his work has been inspired by the joy that he saw in the Beatles. So actually a world without the Beatles could be a world without... It's, it's sort of... It's mad to think about what else could it, exist. And like... Is it meta? In a meta... It's meta. <laughs> I was just going to say <laughs> yeah, that. It is. <laughs> um, yeah, but what have you discovered about Richard Curtis that you didn't know before? Well, I actually didn't know that he grew up in, not in the UK, essentially. Yeah, because his work is so British. So British. Especially things like, so he worked on The Vicar of Dibley totally. with John French. Yes. And that is so English, Absolutely. like this little sleepy old town and this woman vicar who comes in and everyone's up in arms. And there are just some great one-liners in that script, as there always are, with Richard Curtis. And I think that's why his his work is so successful actually is because he can he's able to pinpoint um certain things that that every british person understands but they almost don't know themselves just how british they are he also worked on the number one ladies detective agency war horse the boat that rocked and mamma mia 2 there's just so many amazing films totally um and mr bean is one of my favorite comedies of all time i know it's so good i really didn't i didn't know that he worked on that for so many years he so wrote recently. it yeah. yeah 
So mm. he met Rowan Atkinson when he was at Oxford and then they worked together on a show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and then Not the Nine O'Clock News and then Blackadder and Mr Bean and all the films together. And most recently at the Olympic opening ceremony when London hosted the Olympics. And that's where Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis first met each other. And that collaboration has led to them working together on Yesterday. And I, I think it was a recent interview that he had um, on Table Manners podcast where he talks about his sort of writing process and you know actually getting very distract being distracted very easily sometimes you do just need to to kind of lock yourself away for a bit and concentrate for long periods of time Um, and I remember thinking that when I was listening to that episode I thought gosh how amazing would that be to just be completely on your own in the middle of nowhere for several weeks and just see what creativity comes to you and how it comes to you I think the other thing about his work is the collaboration aspect of it because he so he also co-wrote um Bridget Jones Diary and and Bridget Jones The Edge of Reason as well with Helen Fielding who obviously wrote the books and she was his um girlfriend at one point and then great friend and she was also the script editor for The Tall Guy have you seen that film The Tall Guy no, I haven't. He talks about it actually in his um, Desert Island Disc with Sue Lawley and he says that Jeff Goldblum doesn't quite have the same spark that you see with Hugh Grant and that all over the place charm. That's another kind of creative relationship that just works with Richard Curtis and Hugh Grant. And a creative relationship seems to be what he's had both with Helen Fielding and the tall guy and Bridget Jones films and now with Emma Freud, who is his girlfriend Mm. of 29 years. She's been the script editor for Four Weddings and Funeral, Notting Hill, About Time, Yesterday. Yes. And what's interesting is that she doesn't really have any other agenda other than pulling out the best of him. And I think that really shines through in all the films that they've worked on together and also in their charity work where they work together for the UN on the global goals and on comic relief. It's incredible that they can work together so closely, I think. Uh, I don't think, I don't know, I, I sometimes think about that. And I think about, because I listen to the Deliciously Ella podcast a lot. It's really good. Really recommend it. Um, but I just, I think, gosh, working with your partner professionally and then and having children, that's a lot. Because in Emma Freud's um, interview with Dolly Alderson, which is my favourite podcast of all time if I was going to do a desert island disc for podcasts that would be like my number one it'd be the one that I'd save from the waves <laughs> uh, love stories love stories or that specific episode that specific episodes of love stories oh my gosh we should do a desert island discs of podcasts yeah we should that would be so good Bill Nye's um desert island disc that would be very meta wouldn't it That's <laughs> it would be meta. on there as well anyway (laughs) um but she was she was (laughs) she was talking to um dolly about how in each of the films that they work on together they try to have a line that distills the core message of that film so when i went to see yesterday for the second time i was looking out for it and i wrote down two the first is a world without the beatles is a world that's infinitely worse and the second is it's not complicated. Tell the girl you love that you love her and tell the truth whenever you can. Yeah. And I also watched About Time 
which is my favourite film of all time. And um, I think for that, it's the last scene when the main character who can travel back in time follows in his father's footsteps and decides to live each day twice. So the first day as a normal day and the second day trying to notice all of those ordinary but extraordinary moments that make life full of joy. And the film finishes with this beautiful line, which is, we're all traveling through time, all of us. All we can do is try our best to relish this remarkable ride. So it opens something up that would be reserved to someone with that supernatural ability to everybody. And we can all try and live each day in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's it's looking at the thing that we almost find most fascinating of all, which is what are relationships, why are they so important, why are they hard to get right. And all relationships, like family and friendships. And and why we're all in, what are we all in search for? Yes, yeah, exactly. So we can't talk about Richard Curtis without talking about Comic Relief, which was the charity that he founded with Lenny Henry in 1985. And they have since raised over a billion pounds. And the way that he explains it in this interview with Krishnan Gurumurti is fantastic. Such a good interview. Such, that would be another one on my Desert Island Disc of podcasts. Um, he talks about how you should use who you are and what you're good at in what you do, in that... What he was good at was writing comedy and then what the difference that he wanted to make was for poverty and putting them together in a way that doesn't seem logical but just works perfectly and has brought so many people together and not only has a financial value but also such a massive educational value because I just think that without it we wouldn't have been aware in the same way growing up of what life can be like not only within Britain but like outside of Britain. Comic relief is such a essential part of growing up as a British child like you always hear about comic relief Red Nose Day. Richard Gladys was just is just around all the time um growing up in the UK um I don't know whether that's the same when you don't grow up here probably not but actually I love the concept of comic relief is sort of (laughs) <laughs> just like two two people who just thought let's 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 start a charity to make poverty history which is sort of something that seems like literally impossible but it's like we'll have a go so he he um met emma through um an interview that he did with her actually while she was at the bbc and one of her questions was well comic and relief like surely those words don't go together but bringing it does it does work And it's kind of just using the way that he can use words to pull at your kind of heartstrings in a way that's going to benefit lots of other people. And I think that's the argument against what has come up recently with the whole white saviour idea that several people feel that programmes like Comic Relief kind of frame certainly continents like Africa in a certain way and it's not helpful. But actually by making those films and having celebrities go out there that is a way of making as much money as possible for the communities that really need it. And that if you are showing certain elements of that continent or different countries, then it is for the kind of greater good. What are your views on that? Yeah, but yeah and, and they're also learning. I, I don't know. I think, they're, I think they're learning. I think we're all learning. I think we are needing to be careful that we don't um, have lots of children in the you know UK growing up thinking Africa is a country and that there's poverty in Africa 
as just like a, a blanket statement and as a blanket kind of you know and and, and africa equals xyz or has this sort of reputation um and you know there are so many things in the last year alone that we are educating ourselves on in how to frame and how we address things and how we speak to people and this is i think something that will be the same um because i think it is really important um that we that we don't have a a sort of white savior volunteer you know kind of like voluntourism mentality um because these are human beings too and and actually we want to be making the most difference we don't want to be kind of pulling away from and also what's a shame about the white savior complex is is that we end up having a you know conversation about the white savior complex and not actually about the issue at hand yes that's true it can end up being distracting from the actual issue yeah but i think um one of the things i really love about richard curtis is that he kind of captures that um lewis carroll quote which was to do the right thing quietly for so many years we've all known about comic relief and the amazing work that it does but it's only recently in my view that we get to see these people behind the scenes and the people in the writing rooms and the people behind the cameras and and making everything happen have actually come to the forefront and you know them more as characters now and I think that goes for both the sort of incredible entertainment that he's brought the world and all the I mean just millions of people that have benefited as a result of Make Poverty History Live 8 which he collaborated on with Bob Geldof and all the work that they do with the UN And I think he uses his connections in a way that is really positive. So, for example, he wrote to J.K. Rowling and asked if she would um, do sort of signed books or something for comic relief. And she ended up writing two unique stories and it raised £28 million. Wow. So it's like one letter from someone who's just... It's the definition of like using your platform and your privilege in a way that is going to most benefit people. Totally. In several interviews, he talks about his upbringing in Manila in the Philippines and how that really highlighted the divide between rich and poor in such a tangible and forceful way. Even Mm. just, I found out little things about him from researching. So he was head boy at Harrow and he um, banned what was known as fagging. And I was like, what the hell was that? It sounds so... Oh, I don't want to know. So it was basically that there was a tradition of the youngest students being kind of personal slaves to the oldest students which sounds it's just like so typical Typical private school school, but um but yeah he banned it i think that richard curtis will also be one of those people that in hindsight we look back on and go oh my gosh he has contributed so much to you know british culture i suppose and and quietly working away at it absolutely you can already see the ripple effect of Richard and Emma's work in their children, especially with Scarlett Curtis, who is the founder or co-founder of the Pink Protest. And they, together with Amica George, raised um, money from the government from the tampon tax to try and combat period poverty and kind of organised a rally of 3,000 people outside Parliament. So you can already see how these, the work of one generation can inspire and ignite more. One last question on the Beatles. What is your favourite 
Beatles song? It's actually it actually changes a lot. Um, I think that because we grew up, obviously Beatles weren't, um, you know, creating music when we were growing up so it's something that you can just timelessly revisit as if it's the first time kind of thing it's not like going to come out randomly in the charts whereas watching yesterday that sort of reinvigorated that um i just thought gosh the music is just absolutely brilliant i do love yesterday the that the actual song it's just incredible the volume of songs that they created that are just Mm. i love it it's so in it, and the stakes for me going to watch this film were so impossibly high because I grew up with the Beatles. All of my earliest memories are dancing around the living room with my brother to Eight Days a Week, which is my favourite Beatles song. I love Suffolk with Richard Curtis, Emma Freud working together on what may be their final film. Do you think? Lily James. Yeah. Why do you so. think that? Um, well, they're so labour intensive. They're yeah. so like he's he's now sixty two. Mm, kind of, of course. <laughs> I mean, I hope it's not their last film, but I kind of understand if it is. So every element of it had a certain resonance for me, but it just hit every sec- single expectation. Did you like Ed Sheeran? I loved Ed Sheeran. I thought he yeah, did was such great. a good job. Well, he Richard took- Gertis said that he said that the film is actually about Ed. Yes. So he said it's sort of he said it was actually about him guy from Suffolk becomes like ridiculously Beatle level famous you know relatively quickly travels the world has everything fame throws at him and actually comes back and marries her school friend and and that's who he's been in love with the whole time and I love that as the core message of the film I read this interview with Vicky McClure the actress and one of the lines that the journalist had written was she seemed to have clocked this concept that success is finding contentment in the everyday, not chasing the stars. And I think that that is finally kind of being recognised by more people and we're seeing it more and we're actually realising that it is what you, how you feel every day and the people that you spend your time with. That's what makes happiness and success. Second figure that we are going to be looking at this week is that we buy... 80 billion items of clothing every year and I think it's kind of more pertinent than ever now to be talking about fast fashion that's become something almost like veganism that people have suddenly it feels like suddenly have awareness I only really discovered what the impact in terms of the environment was on fast fashion when we interviewed the activist Gina Martin last summer. So for anyone who doesn't realise that fast fashion is the clothes that are produced en masse very cheaply and follow the trends, they generally don't last so long and you wouldn't worry about throwing them away after just a couple of wears. But the real cost comes in the water, in the labour, in the microplastics in the ocean. Definitely. And I listened to Lucy Siegel and Livia Firth as well. Um, I think they've both been on Talking Taste Buds as well, which is one of my favourite podcasts, um, and just talking about it. And again, so it's definitely something that I, almost like veganism as opposed to vegetarianism, was something that I just thought, oh, it'd be more convenient if I just don't really engage. So I, I feel like I didn't engage with it for a long time. When I hear sustainable fashion, you just think, oh, that's just not really accessible for me um, because actually, you know, clothes that are made 
properly and ethically are much more expensive. But actually, we're not really looking at that. We're just looking at not buying as much and just keep wearing the same thing over and over again. Um, but as the consumer, if I want something like a you know, t-shirt for something or a swimming costume, whatever, and I'm just going to go on ASOS and it's something there that's £14 as opposed to 95 I'm just going to get the ASOS one. And so I feel like it's so hard to actually know how to tackle this issue unless we really cracked down on it. It's also addictive because we, there's kind of mm. dopamine hits that, and like serotonin hits that you get from buying something new. Oh, absolutely. And then it's so available. It's kind of like supermarkets putting all the sugary um, sweets and treats at the eye level of children and how that is no longer allowed. And there's so much more awareness of the um, dangers of sugar. And we have a tax on it, but I feel like we've got the equivalent in fashion where you walk down the high street and got H&M going 50% off, 75% off, summer sale. And online, you've got ASOS and then you've got those advertising banners where they remember if you've looked at something, you've had it in your basket, then you go away and then you come back and you're on a completely different website and it will come up with everything that you've looked at. It's like, buy me, buy me, buy me. And also they also try and um, plug themselves as being a sustainable fashion brand when actually that's not true. It's so manipulative. Yeah, like the conscious collection of H&M that actually, is it that conscious? I mean, are they actually paying people more than the minimum wage? Is it the same factories in Bangladesh or in Cambodia? Like it's it's just very blurred. Um, and the supply chain is so lost on the consumer. You just don't really know what happens in between buying that garment and where it comes from and that's really what the documentary true cost addresses that what is the you might buy a one pound bikini yeah. why do they have these one pound bikinis <laughs> I that's don't absolutely know. ridiculous surely it would fall apart after wearing it once <laughs> yeah exactly mm. um but what is the cost on the planet in terms of the water it's taken to produce that the labor there was that disaster with rana plaza i didn't know anything about that mm, did no, you no so this was, an, was, I don't know how many story building it was in Bangladesh, which collapsed and killed more than a thousand people. And apparently Mostly the people women. who worked there at the factory had been nervous about the building and the cracks that were showing um, the couple of days before it literally came tumbling really? down. Oh. And it's still happening. It's just like, how are we still in this position where we don't sort of realise where things properly come from? Do you feel like you find it hard to cause, like to sort of identify as a feminist and engage in fast f- fashion, knowing that actually women are the ones who are mostly affected? I feel like it takes sometimes a couple of hits for it to sink in. And it was the same with um, choosing to be, well, I'm pescatarian, but like mostly vegetarian meals, that it took me quite a few like goes of letting the information sink in so with Gina um who we interviewed last year she kind of spoke about it and then I remember going off shopping and feeling really weird about it and quite guilty and I only bought one dress which I have worn probably 20 times I will wear it 30 times which is one of the rules that Lucy Siegel talks about but anyway, a few months later, there was the Stacey Julie episode of that that I watched. And then I watched True Cost this week. And I just don't know that I will 
kind of let myself go into those shops anymore because I'm just not going to feel I'm not going to feel comfortable and actually the best way to remove yourself is just to not go in and not look at it but then also I was thinking what well, is something that upsets people is that they can't buy from these shops like Zara or H&M or whatever but actually you can find these in charity shops you can go and explore vintage shops and you can find them on Depop or eBay and that way you're not buying into this cycle of fast fashion and the drain on resources. Oh yeah definitely secondhand is just the way to go. Like secondhand is brilliant. I've just had a huge sweep through Depop. And actually the best thing, I've got these jeans from Topshop and they're my favourite jeans and they've discontinued them. And so I just went on to Depop and I put in my like waist size and the jean and it came up and I was like, amazing. Because I wouldn't have actually been able to buy that new. And then it's just all around better mm. for everybody and it saves me money as well. Absolutely. I didn't really answer your question though with that feminist thing. Um, I think that this true cost documentary has like it's the final nail in the coffin i don't i think that my attitude will change a lot having had that extra like hit of this is what it's really doing what about you Mm. well i mean i feel as though i don't shop a lot anyway i definitely spend my money oh i think predominantly on other things but then who am I comparing that to I'm probably comparing that to um girls that probably order stuff from ASOS you know maybe twice a month I would so like to say that I wouldn't buy anything from fast fashion anymore or I'd go to charity shops but I just know that because of cost because I know I can walk into Zara which is one of my favorite shops in the world and get a really beautiful skirt for £25 that's just, you know, that that I could use at work, I can use in the weekends, I can, you know, it just makes the outfit that I I know I will just go back, which is really hard to admit, Um, but it is just... But then I think maybe it's it's not about a complete boycott, it's just about Mm. having the conversations and then buying less frequently and only buying those things that you know that you're going to wear a lot lucy siegel talks in her interview with venetia faulkner about how if you extend the life of a garment for nine months that reduces the environmental impacts by 20 to 30 percent that's huge and that's totally doable um Mm. another thing that i've done this year which is every year i would normally buy like a new bikini for the summer season or whatever from h&m right and they're what 20 pounds this year um i i think it's I don't know how much they cost. Probably, I think about £110. Um, a swimming, like a bikini... I haven't decided whether I go a swimming costume or a, a bikini set from a brand called Stay Wild Swim, which is sold in Selfridges and online. And it's made out of... It's made in um, a clothing studio in Kensington. So it's like local area to me. Um, everyone is paid living wage. And it's the materials they use are recycled think some recycled plastics from the ocean or plastic fibers from the ocean and it's sort of guaranteed I think it's like guaranteed for a really long time so essentially the idea is that you have it for 10 years you know 20 years and that you just wear the same bathing suit every single day in the summer and so that's like something an investment. That I'm, yeah an investment for that and I really want to do that because swimming costumes it's one of those things that actually a really good quality one 
almost like underwear you know you, you wear it so much that actually it makes such a big difference and cheap underwear from Primark that you're just going to keep buying over and over again that breaks and you know disintegrates is, is awful yeah absolutely the um that's good that you've mentioned that specific brand actually I'll definitely look into them the other ones mm. that I wanted to highlight that were on true cost were um people tree and mm-hmm. um Patagonia yeah I think nobody's child was another one that Gina Martin mentioned what is your view on re-wearing the same outfit I'm totally again up for re-wearing the same outfit, I think. Would you, would you, if you were... So I was, actually, this is actually something that I was thinking about for an event that I'm going to next week, which, firstly, I probably wasn't at risk of buying another dress, to be honest, because I have loads. But I really wanted to wear a specific dress that I wore to a similar st- type of event this time last year. And there are quite a lot of photos of me in it. And for some reason, I just thought oh well there have already been loads of photos in a sort of because it's for a ball right so in and it's like who who am I worrying that's going to see these photos twice like I'm not even a, f- a public figure well, think, or a famous person yeah. no one cares <laughs> and even if I was I mean look at Kate Middleton she wears the same thing all the time I mean she'll recycle I mean I think she's wears some of her outfits like she's now on the sixth or seventh go and just changes the hair and accessories. But would you do that for like a wedding? Would you wear the same dress? Yeah, I wore the same outfit. So um, for my uncle's wedding, I wore the same thing that I wore for a wedding last summer. Oh, there you go. And my, yeah, and I probably would do mm. the same. Like it's it's a really nice cobalt blue Reese dress that I got on mm. eBay for about £15. It's brilliant. Um, yeah, I think that the re-wearing thing is... A symptom of like Instagram photograph age which has so Mm. massively accelerated like we've got the acceleration of social media at the same time as the acceleration of fast fashion so if you've got your brand and your image and you've got to think about how you look all the time and that actually I kind of want it to become fashionable to be seen to be re-wearing it because talking about fast fashion and like being eco-friendly and eco-minded I feel like is much trendier than it used to totally. be. It used to be like a hippy dippy, like totally. really uncool thing. And now you need to be plugged into what's going on. And it would be great if that became a really popular thing to be seen to be wearing the same thing twice. Gina Martin did that actually. She always wore these um, gorgeous trousers with which were pink and red with flames and then her heels. And that became kind of her image and brand. And Oh yes, yeah, she wore the same outfit for every single public appearance which is really cool, and that became, yeah, it became her outfit. Livia Firth um, was interviewed on Talking Taste Buds. She's, she's actually, she happens to be married to Colin Firth and started sort of using this spotlight that she got from doing all the red carpet events with him um, to start the green carpet challenge. So it's sort of challenging celebrities to wear something on the red carpet that is a completely sustainably made outfit and bringing awareness to the fashion industry and how damaging it is because also we're talking about fast fashion now but equally you know these big fashion houses are so destructive to the environment I mean remember we heard that thing about Burberry just setting fire to thousands of garments that hadn't been sold um and yeah because they want to protect their brand they don't want them to end up in outlets exactly um, 
and so she and she even she I think she was approached by Lucy Siegel to actually start doing it and kind of avoided um avoided the issue like avoided Lucy um initially because she kind of almost didn't know kind of where to go or how to even approach it but um and I think she was looking into working with women you know who have suffered from domestic violence in Bangladesh and then actually by coincidence discovered all of these factories of women in there um, and the conditions that they were in and which she describes like prisons yeah. like they've literally got bars mm. on the windows and when the um when Rana Plaza collapsed they then raised the wages but then they expected more from yeah, the workers work so them, yeah. instead of producing 100 garments an hour they had to produce 200 garments an hour yeah that's ridiculous it's just it's so wrong um but yeah the green carpet challenge is such a forward thinking and necessary movement and Cameron Diaz was involved and wore a dress by Stella McCartney I love Stella McCartney again I can't believe that be you know she was so ridiculed um I can't wait to do her as a figure soon actually but she was so ridiculed for starting up a luxury fashion brand as completely sustainable and vegan and everyone thought she was you know just silly um and actually now Mm -hmm. how perfect that we have a brand like that I, I mean, know. what a family. What a family. We've got, like, the creator of some of the best songs ever written that are just so beautifully inclusive. That was something I, I watched a documentary called Eight Days a Week, and they had an interview with Whoopi Goldberg, and she was just talking about how the Beatles' music fa- made everybody feel like they were invited, yeah. and that was the sentiment that flowed through the music. And then you've got Linda McCartney with all her work on vegan food and sustainability, and then passed down to the next generation you've got Stella McCartney with her fashion it's just so inspiring yeah and Mary McCartney as well um who's her sister who's a photographer um and also works on the Linda McCartney brand yeah no it's an amazing amazing family definitely without a doubt I can't wait I almost can't wait to be able to actually buy things from Stella McCartney they're just so completely out of my price range at the moment that I can't really imagine it (laughs) (laughs) Mm. it's a good goal um just lastly and this like this is not so good to end on not such a positive note but um there was a there were 18 recommendations that were presented to the government um they kind of did an inquiry into fast fashion and big fashion brands and what they're doing and all 18 of the recommendations have been rejected Ugh, I mean, it's just, it's so typical of this political time, isn't it? Where there's just energy on one thing only and you can't let anything else go through. And it's just such a bigger problem of this, of our planet. I mean, some of the stats are just horrific. Like fashion is the biggest contributor to carbon emissions after the oil industry. I know, it will have to be taxed. It will have to be taxed. There's no way that a company like ASOS and pretty little thing and god knows what else there's no way that they can continue to do this as 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 they have been yeah but it's also about changing the consumer mindset isn't it true but people are always going to buy sugar you know it it, yes we can educate people as well but equally if there is a high tax then that is going to be a way of discouraging it i reckon australia will do it first boris johnson might be scrapping the sugar tax just to end on another lovely note 
Why? Because he thinks that it's not... Um, he just he questions how helpful it is. And there was a Scottish comedian who wrote... He spoke up about it and he said that um, it is helpful and it really highlights that there is a problem and that the government sort of recognise obesity and mm. sugar consumption as an issue. Anyway, won't get into that. <laughs> the third figure that we're going to talk about is an image of Tommy Lanigan, who is standing outside the Stonewall Inn, which was a gay bar in New York City in 1969 and this was taken after the Stonewall uprisings that began on the 28th of June 1969 and went on for six days and really for anyone who doesn't know that was the the police came and they tried to raid the club but for the first time from what I understand people really stood up for their identity and started shouting gay power and this led to six days of um kind of rebellion and riots within New York and really was a catalyst for the gay rights movement. And it's just something that I wish I'd learned about in school in the same way that we covered the suffragette movement and the um, liberation of women within the UK and how that has developed across the globe in the same way that this is a part of people's identity that was not accepted for a long time. With Stonewall, people finally stopped being silent. That's kind of what changed with the Stonewall uprising, from what I understand. And then that led to the formation of the Gay Liberation Front. They started the first march, which happened in 1970. And now we've got billions of people, would it be? Like, marching all over the world every year. Mm, It's pretty amazing, Pride, uh, that we, you know, come together... Uh, and, and celebrate it's, all, it's such a uplifting time actually it, it sort of seems especially now there's so many things that are uh, you know we're very much plagued by things that are going on in the news and it's great that pride is just sort of a unity and just celebrating love which is great mm. well stonewall's um kind of slogan is acceptance without exception yeah, and I love that. I really love, I that, love that because it is it is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it's also just really good to for people to feel as though they are accepted into society without exception. And whether you're, you know, gay, whether you are from um, an ethnic minority, mm. whether you you know struggle with addiction whether you you know have any kind of challenge or any kind of physical disability like that you feel accepted without exception and it's so powerful when you have those sorts of groups that come together mm-hmm. we, and we do need to make a point of including everybody and we do need to make a point that children are encouraged to go to Pride and we need, yes. we need to make that. And then no matter who you are as your core identity, yeah. it can be accepted and you can do what you dream to do. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. And, you know, we need to have leaders who are part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, you know, one could argue where we, you know, that many, many more of us actually probably identify as part of, you know, a spectrum of sexuality and people can you know date and marry people of the same gender and opposite genders and it doesn't really matter um but again we don't really have any of those people yeah in government um and i just was i just 
was thinking of this in the sort of anniversary of Stonewall and I thought that gosh I can't believe there was a time like in 1969 where you know being gay was just one of the you know everyone was hidden away no one could say anything well there were seven states in America at the time where you could be castrated and castrated yes and there was castrated. and there was one state which I think was Illinois where yeah. it was uh legal I think for homosexual acts yes it is Illinois I was that from the um from the daily the daily yes that was such a brilliant episode. Yes. And what I thought was so interesting when they were talking about the significance of the marches for Pride was that it was during the day. And that was such a huge statement mm. because before you would have, like, if you were ever to see um, large groups of people spending time together who were gay, that would be always at nighttime. Always nighttime. And always a kind of Definitely. personal, private, like, hidden away darkness. Like, just the, yeah, always. that that sort of symbol of being out and proud in the day is actually just so powerful. And I hadn't fully recognised that until they pointed it out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because Tommy Lanigan in this Guardian podcast, I'd highly recommend, kind of like a British version of The Daily, I guess, is that he talks about even just that you could hold hands with somebody and walk down the street. Mm. That's how, like, revolutionary. And it's just these, like, tiny things that people can, like, people who are straight can take for granted. And... And he talks about the um, Stonewall itself as a gay bar, which was all of the gay bars were run by the mafia. Didn't realise yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't realise that either. And actually, no. the, they like pay off the police yeah. and then that's how it all worked. Mm. Um, but they had a room in Stonewall that was a kind of slow dance room where it wasn't just like the music that you would stereotypically think about when you're like the 60s gay bar scene in New York. And he talks about how that was, again, something that was a given for couples who are straight. Know, and that it? that was actually really special to have that yeah. um, for their community as well. Yeah, I think he described it as sort of just being able to hold someone. Just hold someone, mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's really um it sort of links back to one of our episodes that we did just before christmas about section 28 yes um because you know stonewall was 1969 but i still don't think that we've actually become fully accepting of maybe that's the wrong way to phrase it i still think it was sought as a disadvantage um to identify as gay up until four or five years ago and yeah and it depends on where you are because that is certainly still the case in many different parts of the world definitely well of course i mean i mean i think in like half the commonwealth countries it's still punishable by like death and stoning Mm. Mm. so it's a huge issue yeah what do you think also just on that episode of the daily about um like corporations and corporate culture yeah. becoming a huge part of the floats in Pride. I know there's, every year we have a debate about this. Um, More so this year, I think. <sighs> Especially because there's been a second Pride that's been started in New York, which is very, like, it's exclusive of corporate. The founder of it believes that it's um, tainted it and turned it into something mm. that's too commercial. You know, I agree. You know, they've they've definitely jumped on the bandwagon and, you know, using it to make them look as though they are very woke and inclusive. But actually, that encourages wokeness and inclusivity, I think. Um, 
because if you are a company that has to come out and say oh actually we are supporting the pride movement and you know we have people who work here who are openly gay and we have lots of money behind all the charities it's like okay well that's actually good that they are getting behind it however where the issue is is well there's no real check to make sure that 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 company is being inclusive and not doesn't discriminate You've just got to, you've just, from what I can understand, you've basically just got to write the check. Right. And if you can write the check, then and you can be involved. for a lot of these corporations, they're backed by Saudi money and money from the UAE who will put people to death for being gay. So it's a bit of an ox... But then on the other hand, there's also lots of the people who get involved, say, in the London um, march. Like my company, well, the company that I work two days a week for, Starling, they had a float. And that was all set up by the like LGBTQ plus community that exists within Starling. Like they organised it and it came from them. So that's where I think what an amazing thing that they can come together with work colleagues and enjoy that time together. And that was really special so I wouldn't want to take that away but I do kind of I'm like conflicted I can see both sides of the argument of why people wouldn't like all these corporate companies and that element to be in it as well yeah it's it's a difficult one um because companies will just endorse something that was going to make them look better like that is just a fact like Mm. that's a smart thing for them to do but I do think it's it's um it's great that we've got to this point where it's almost abnormal for companies not to have the rainbow logo. I know, which is great. Like it's actually got to a saturation point where it's like flipped. I think even a couple of years ago, it was quite unusual to see lots and lots of like very big companies getting really full on behind it. I think Barclays was one of the early ones. But now you just it's so noticeable. It's just it's weird when people don't do it. Does that make sense? Mm, definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I, I'm glad that we marked the 50 years from Sto- for the Stonewall uprising, though. I think it's important to keep looking back and keep remembering how far we've come and how far we have to go. Where visible, i.e. people in government or people in management, we need to make sure that people are coming from a wide, wide range of backgrounds. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Figure Podcast. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Figure Podcast, Twitter at Figure Podcast, and you can email us thefigurepodcast at gmail.com. We will be back next week with another episode. And then in August, I think we'll have lots of exciting uh, episodes coming up because we'll actually be in the same physical place for a lot longer. Yes, until next week. Until next week. Bye.